Welcome to Forecast, the Foreshadow Podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow, an online literary magazine featuring work that points to the kingdom of God. The forecast today here in Northwest England is actually cloudy with some light rain, but for today's episode, we will be continuing the conversation that began two weeks ago with Carl Windrill, a poet and author of a new book called The Gospel According to Mary. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, which is called A Writer is Always at Work, Part 1 of 2, I recommend you first listen to that before listening to this one. In this episode, Carl reads one of his newest poems, one that he wrote in April of this year, and then describes how his work of writing poetry influences his faith. After my conversation with Carl today, I will then give a brief update about Foreshadow magazine. An Orthodox Christian monk and saint called Elder Porphyrios once said, whoever wants to become a Christian must first become a poet. He then goes on to suggest that a poet loves deeply the way a mother loves her child so deeply that at times she will put the child's needs above her own. As we listen to Carl today, we will hear how Carl himself, as a poet, loves God, loves words, loves the connections between the, scri the scripture and the world around him. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Carl. This one is titled, Lord, By This Time. And with, like with the previous poems, this is basically not me my voice, I mean, it is my voice reading it, but the voice of the narrator, the persona, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she's telling us something in her mind as she remembers, reflects, and again, I'm the one who's wearing the mask because I'm seeing this situation through Mary, the mother of Jesus' idea, ideas and her, her mindset. Um, this is a poem that helps uh, explain, I think, a little bit about my mindset of the writer always being at work. I briefly referenced that in the other segment that we talked about, but I don't believe I quoted Henry James. Henry James is the American writer who kind of set the standard for when the writer is at work. And one of his most famous quotes, I'm gonna paraphrase it a little bit, is that um, what his goal was to be what he called a super subtle fry, someone on whom nothing is ever wasted. Okay, we don't use the word fry this, that, the, the way that he used it in those days. Fry is the name for a little baby fish. It's called a finger. Ah, okay, I was imagining a French fry. <laughs> I know, okay. I know. That, that's the problem. Today we think, well, it's, we're supposed to be a French fry? No, no, no. It's a, remember James was 19, 19th century, early 20th century. So that was a phrase that people would use. So his goal was to be a super subtle fry, a little fish in the school upon whom nothing is ever wasted. In other words, for James, he was always at work. He was famous for being a great dinner guest because of his conversational abilities. But one of the things that people didn't realize is that he would spend as much time listening as he was speaking. Mm. So what he was doing, he was taking in the whole 
the whole dinner experience. And in those days, the dinner would go on for hours, two, three, four hours. He would learn how people talk. He would learn about the setting and the situation. And so for me, that's what I say. If you want to be a really good writer, you have to always be at work. You're not always sitting out with a pad of paper and a pen. You're at work. You're seeing, taking in information. And the background, background for this poem, I actually wrote this poem on the 7th. It's only very a week old. It's not been published or anything. That's April but I wrote 7th. this about a week ago. April 7th, yes. Yeah. So just barely, you know, like 10 days ago. But the backstory on this is I was on, the, on one day, on the 6th, I was reading from my book in the morning, as I often do, reading Wendell Berry's book, That Distant Land. It's a prose piece of his writing about a rural life in Kentucky in the mid to early 1900s. And, and I read a story where one of the characters talked about, well, she was sure raising us thinking in the neighborhood with the things that she was doing and saying. So that was on one day. The next day, I'm in my writing you know, mode. I'm doing my writing thing here, you know. And I'm coming across John 11, verses 35 through 44. That's the famous raising of Lazarus by Jesus. And as we know, his sister, and that's how the poem starts. Sister says, Lord, by this time, he hath been dead four days. This is Lazarus's sister, Mary. And that's how the poem starts. So we're going to read the poem, and then I'll talk a little more about it. So Mary remembers, this is what Mary said when her son walked up to where the tomb is for, for Lazarus. Lord, oh, just, sorry, I'll just say that for our listeners, there's two Marys, isn't there? There's Mary, yeah, yes. the mother of Jesus, and Mary, the sister of Lazarus. I know, you would think with all the names possible in the New Testament that some of these people would not, Mary has a sister, Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus has a sister, you know, there's Mary Magdalene, you know. Yes, thank you, Josh, for that point of uh of a clarification there. So it's Mary, La Lazarus's sister, who starts the poem. The rest of it is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Very good. Okay. So Mary, the sister of Jesus, sister of Lazarus, says, Lord, by this time he hath been dead four days. And then the voice of Mary comes in. When my son proposed the stone be rolled away by human hands, from the mouth of Lazarus's tomb. This is what poor Mary, his sister, feared ever so and said so. My son would by it raise a stink in front of all the Jews, the Pharisees, and the doctors of the law gathered there. When my son called to Lazarus, come forth. But twas ne'er to be compared with the heir after his death. The stone was rolled away in the garden at my son's coming forth. Oh, then, such a stank arose to high heaven, what those very revered there feared. Typical poem of mine in many ways, less than one page. Staggered stanza length, width, casual, accidental rhyme along the way. But also one of the things that uh, I like to do with my poems is have a definite beginning and a definite end, what I call bookends. We all know what a book pair of bookends do on a shelf. You put a bookend over here. It says these are where the books start. You put a bookend over there. This is where the bookend stops. This is where the books all stop. Okay. It, it's helpful for readers to know that you plan how to start it, how to stop it. For me, that's, that's important here. So this poem takes 
takes it. We're back to the freshman composition structure. We've got three examples in the poem. We have an introduction, we have three examples, and we have a conclusion. Okay. It's not as short and brief, but it's 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 structured the same way, but a little less formally. The three examples here have to do with the sense of smell. Okay. First sense is implied. Why does Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, not want the stone to be rolled away? Because everybody in those days, and as we know from, from the scripture, she's concerned about the stink, the stench that will come because he's been dead for four days. No matter what their preparation was, that body is deteriorating and it's been locked up in an airtight tomb. When they pull the stone away, there's going to be a stench. So this is for me using an implication. I'm, I'm expecting the reader to know a little bit about the story here and to know what is her concern. She's more concerned about the fuss or the smell than she is about the fact that Jesus is going to do some kind of miracle here. So that's the implied thing. Hmm. <clears throat> Mary then articulates it toward the middle of the poem. She says that what Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is afraid of is that my son would raise a stink in front of all of the people. That's, that's basically what Jesus did. He was constantly raising a stink for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the doctors of the law, the scribes, everyone. Everywhere Jesus went, he was putting something in the air that, that caused them to want to hold their nose. They couldn't believe that he was causing problems for them. So there's the first literal example of raising a stink. Second one. Then the third one, of course, is Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the end, through implication also there, and a metaphor, she says, yeah, well, when my stone gets rolled away from my son's tomb, there will not be a, a, the smell except of maybe roses, as we know from other writings, that there will be a metaphorical stink that will rise to high heaven, which is ironic because the smell, the roses will rise to high heaven, but that's also what her son is going to do. And he's going to create a stink on earth because those same people who revered their, revered their status as Jews and scribes and doctors of the law, they're the ones, they, that's what they feared. They feared that they were going to have to deal with the stink that's been, rose, has been arisen. Not, not a literal one, but it's going to be a real problem for them now because they thought they killed Jesus. Mm -hmm. He came back to life anyway, just like he brought Lazarus back to life. So for, for, for me, that's a, I like to get it on one page. I like to make it concise. I like to have a beginning. I like to have an end. And, uh, and, and for me, <clears throat> this is what happens when I feel like I'm immersed in scripture, in thinking. My, my poems are almost theological, I think, in a way, as I try to explain the uh, background, the mystery of the miracle. What's its significance? The significance here is that Jesus is not afraid to people, you know, to offend them in such a way that they'll back off because they're afraid of the smell. Well, they can't back off from the, from the smell at the end here because he has arisen. And, he, and uh, you know, it's, it's been very, very carefully planned. So again, the, the beginning is at verse 39 in chapter 11. So one day I read about the idea in Wendell Berry's book. The next day I'm reading along in chapter 11. I'm going, wait a minute, I see possibilities here from John. <laughs> yeah. And I just have one question for you about that. Um, sure. is these, these connections you're making between different uh, pieces of literature and also the connection of stink and, and using that in different ways. Um, how do those connections that you make enrich your understanding of your faith and, and of the gospel? Um, 
because these are kind of connections that often you know isn't uh, explicitly there in the bible the connection between the stink of lazarus's um um corpse and the the ins the the smell the scent of jesus's um risen body being kind of opposite and and the raising a stink um to use that phrase those aren't there in the bible so you're making those connections yourself how does that enrich your faith how does your writing process and influence your faith the the pose of a of a poet and i say pose in a positive way that the poet begins with the basic premise that he's going to see things literally and figuratively and uh, when i would teach poetry classes on the very first day of the class i would let students know that i can teach you how to write poetry but I cannot teach you to be a poet. There's a big difference there. And I would say the follow up, I would say, if you're going to be a poet, that's up to you. You've either got it in you or you're gonna figure out a way to make that happen. But for me, when I would see students writing or when I would read other poets, I would understand that they're able to take something that is literal and see it figuratively as well. That's what the power of a, of a simile or a metaphor does. It says something is like something else, or it says something is something else. You know, someone is swift as a, as a deer, as a simile. Uh, William Butler Yeats said, an old, an old man is but a tattered coat upon a stick. You know, there's no like or as there. He asserts that the man is just thin like a stick and his clothing are, is all worn out. It's an engagement that's invited with the listener or the reader to make those leaps. And I think that's what makes poetry, I think, somewhat difficult for some people to understand is that the writer expects them, the poet expects them, hey, take the leap with me. You know, uh, let's think about, we all know what it means to smell literally, but what about smelling figuratively? And for what Mary implies, and you've already pointed this out here, is that the, the original smell from Lazarus's tomb is repulsive, it's repugnant, you know, it's offensive. But when Jesus arises, the scent is beautiful. All of the frankincense and myrrh and cassia and aloe. And I'm a poet and I love this. Those were the same ointments that they put on his body when he was a baby. I mean, yeah. people would say to me, what's your favorite book? And I say, it's the Bible. And they say, oh no, you have to say that because you taught at a Christian university. I'm like, no, you know, uh, that's the way it is uh, because there's so much flashbacking and foreshadowing. I love the fact that they use the women who brought spices to Jesus to prepare his body for burial. Those are the same spices that they put on his body when he was a baby. How can you not love the Bible when you see things like that? One of my favorite quotes from St. Augustine is that he's the one who said, the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And it's this concealing revealing that I think helps me understand and makes me look for these opportunities. So that's how my faith is strengthened. Um, for me, faith is intellectual. It's a rational thing. I decide to follow Christ because I believe in what he says and what he's done and what he does, basically. Uh, and so for me, the, my faith is an intellectual exercise. And when I see things like this, when I see these overlaps, when I see the foreshadowing and the flashbacking, you know, when I see that, Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice there foreshadows what God is going to do with his son, Jesus. And that we have the same notion of he's the lamb of God. 
We have the same notion that Abraham saves Isaac's life because he sees a ram or another sheep, you know, in the thicket and he sacrifices him instead of his son. I mean, that kind of juxtaposition that that makes me go, how can I not want to read a book? How can I not want to believe these stories? And I think part of what I try to do is to help people see that kind of insight as well. Maybe that's what the gospel according to Mary is all about. Uh, uh, you know, helping people to see the things that I see and to see them literally and figuratively. Uh, in, in this poem here, making that how that something that could smell so bad could end up smelling so good. And you know what? That's Jesus. That's God. He does that with all of our lives. He takes what we are and makes something beautiful out of what we can be, could be, should be. That's beautiful. Thank you, Carl. And it's it's an honor to to hear and read this poem that's fresh fresh out of the uh, out of the baking oven, so to speak. So um, thank you for sharing that. And again, thank you for the time you've taken to um, explain some of your poetry and your process and your faith with us. And it's been an honor to to speak with you. Well, and it's been an honor for you to spend as much time with me. You are an insightful reader. And uh, with regard to foreshadow, I love the way that you are in your own way every week, advancing the way that we can use our faith and our art together for me, for other writers, singers, poets. <clears throat> I'm blessed too. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> like to update you on Foreshadow's emerging identity as it enters its second half of its first year of existence. I'd like to take this occasion to identify three qualities that the magazine aspires towards. The first is eschatological. Eschatology is the study of last things. And um, the Christian faith teaches that Christ is coming again to establish his kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy, and to unite heaven on earth. We don't know when this will take place, but we believe we're called to live in eager expectation of that day. This is where the name foreshadow comes from. It's not only a literary term, but we hope that the magazine becomes a signpost of God's coming kingdom, offering both hope and challenge for us to be fit and ready for its arrival, and to notice areas where it's already present among us, even today. Most of the pieces that you find on the magazine are not explicitly eschatological, although there are exceptions, like this one uh, that you'll hear a clip of, Evan Amos' song, World Reborn. Distant land, powers held by the 
So most pieces on Foreshadow are not as explicitly eschatological as that, but all of them, to varying degrees, we hope, can reorient us towards the hope we have of glory and transformation in Christ. The second quality that the magazine aspires towards is sacramental. This means that as a signpost of God's kingdom, at its best, foreshadow seeks to offer glimpses of that kingdom through the content that we produce, that we offer. And this is grounded in the faith that if we are truthful and working with God in our lives, we can hope that God is also present in the things that we create and using them to bless, speak to, and touch those who encounter them. If you've been listening to some of our forecasts, you will know that this is a theme that is emerging that several of our guests have spoken about, such as Ken Deeks in the episode, I Take Christ With Me. I don't see a difference I mean, when I'm in church, I'm worshipping, specifically worshipping. But where I am, wherever I am, I'm not different from where I would be anywhere else. Uh, I, I, I don't try to be, I, I don't try to uh, exclude people with a religious language. Uh, I, I don't try, I am just, and, and, and I try to be 24-7 what I am, wherever I am. Now, I'm not to say that I'm perfect or I don't have a headache, or I, I, I'm sometimes, I might get irritable. But I'm keenly aware of that when it happens, probably after the event. But what I'm trying to say is that I try to be what I am, wherever I am. And I am a Christian. So I can't stop being a Christian just because I'm at, uh, at the NHS, or when I'm going to a nursing home, or when I'm out with my friends doing tunes at the beach band, or when I'm calling a Kaylee. It's the same me wherever I am. And so I take, so if you want to be, if you want to wrap it up in, uh, and forgive me for putting this way, if you want to wrap it up in religious language, I take Christ with me, in me. Now, uh, I fail, and that's what forgiveness is about. But I still take him with me 24-7. The third quality that the magazine aspires towards is formational. And this results from Foreshadow's eschatological and sacramental qualities. What it means is that to our best extent, we would like to engage in the Christian task of making disciples of Jesus, challenging and encouraging one another in our pilgrimage to the kingdom. And this isn't primarily abstract, but it's rooted in the nitty-gritty of our daily life, illustrated with personal narratives and images. To give an example of this, be sure to read Tim Harvey's essay, The Comfort That Comes to Those Who Mourn, in which he considers how he, as a follower of Christ, will best respond to one of his friends with whom he has an ideological difference that has divided their friendship. Or read Eileen R. Kinch's poem, Planting Forgiveness, in which she describes the life-changing power of forgiveness through the image of planting a seed. So I hope these three points help to give you a clearer idea of the direction in which foreshadow is moving. If you resonate with his vision, then please do continue and do contribute 
to this project, your writing, your music, uh, your comments, your feedback. If you have any questions, please do send those and maybe we can include them on a future forecast. You can email us at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com. Please also visit our website at foreshadowmagazine.com. And if you think of anyone who you think will enjoy and appreciate this work, please do share the various works and conversations you find on the website. In closing, I would like to thank Will for his help in co-hosting Forecast, for the various guests who have agreed to speak on the podcast for their trust and for their time, for all of those who have contributed their work to this magazine, and for you readers and for all of you who have given helpful and encouraging support. So, with your help, we look forward to seeing what these next months have in store for Foreshadow. Thanks for listening. That's the forecast for today.